We're going to be looking at Acts 24 and 25 tonight. Let me pray before we kick off, and then Mike and Tony are going to come and read that for us. Lord Jesus, please speak to us tonight. Please be with us. Please show us things that we need to hear. Please give me the words to say. Please teach our hearts. Please, by your Spirit, change us and inform us and equip us uh, to witness for you this week. Amen. Um, over to Mike and Tony. Five days later, the high priest Ananias went down to Caesarea with some of the elders and a lawyer named Tertullus, and they brought their charges against Paul before the governor. When Paul was called in, Tertullus presented his case before Felix. We have enjoyed a long period of peace under you, and your um, foresight has brought about reforms in this nation. Everywhere and in every way, most excellent Felix, we acknowledge this with profound gratitude. But in order not to weary you further, I would request that you be kind enough to hear us briefly. We have found this man to be a troublemaker, stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. He is a ringleader of the Nazarene sect, and even tried to desecrate the temple. So we seized him. By examining him you yourself, you will be able to learn the truth about all these charges we are bringing against him. The other Jews joined in the accusation, asserting that these things were true. When the governor motioned for him to speak, Paul replied, I know that for a number of years you have been a judge over this nation, so I gladly make my defence. You can easily verify that no more than 12 days ago I went up to Jerusalem to worship. My accusers did not find me arguing with anyone at the temple or stirring up a crowd in the synagogue or anywhere else in the city and they cannot prove to you the charges they are now making against me. However, I admit that I worship the God of our ancestors as a follower of the way, which they call a sect. I believe everything that is in accordance with law, and this is written in the prophets, and I have the same hope in God as these men themselves have, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked, so I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. After an absence of several years, I came to Jerusalem to bring my people gifts to the poor and to present offerings. I was ceremonially clean when they found me in the temple courts doing this. There was no crowd with me, nor was I involved in any disturbance. But there are some, um, some Jews from the province of Asia who ought to be here before you and bring charges if they have anything against me. Or these who are here should state what crime they found in me when I stood before the Sanhedrin. Unless it was the, what, this one thing I shouted as I stood in their presence, it is concerning the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you today. Then Felix, who was well acquainted with the way, adjourns the proceedings. When Lysias, the commander, comes, he said, I will decide your case. He ordered the centurion to keep Paul under guard, but to give him some freedom and permit his friends to take care of his needs. Several days later, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. He sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. As Paul talked about righteousness, self-control and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and said, that's enough for now. You may leave. When I find it convenient, I will send for you. At the same time, he was hoping that Paul would offer him a bribe, so he sent for him frequently and talked with him. When two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus, but because Felix wanted to grant a favour to the Jews, he left Paul in prison. um, Chapter 25. Three days after arriving in the province, Festus went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem, where the chief priests and the Jewish leaders appeared before him, and presented the charges against Paul. They requested Festus, as a favour to them, to have Paul transferred to Jerusalem, for they were preparing an ambush to kill him along the way. Festus answered, Paul is being held at Caesarea, and I myself am going there soon. 
Let some of your leaders come with me, and if the man has done anything wrong, they can press charges against him there. After spending eight or ten days with them, Festus went down to Caesarea. The next day he covered in the court and ordered that Paul be brought before him. When Paul came in, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood round him. They had brought many serious charges against him, but they could not prove them. Then Paul made his defence. I have done nothing wrong against the Jewish law, or against the temple, or against Caesar. Festus, wishing to the Jews a favour, said to Paul, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial before me there on these charges? Paul answered, I am now standing before Caesar's court, where I ought to be tried. I have not done any wrong to the Jews, as you yourself know very well. If, however, I am guilty of doing anything deserving death, I do not refuse to die. But if the charges brought against me by these Jews are not true, no one has the right to hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. After Festus had conferred with his counsel, he declared, You have appealed to Caesar. To Caesar you will go. Awesome. Thank you, guys. Uh, it's a long stretch. Um, I read a lot. Um, I go through binges. Sometimes uh, I'll work through long, long series of science fiction and fantasy, rarely stuff more worthy than that. It's one of my not very guilty pleasures. Um, I do read occasionally some more respectable material as well, um, but mostly one I'm forced to. So for a book club recently in our staff room, I I read a a book called Aunt Julia and the Scriptwriter. It's by the Nobel Prize winner, Mario Vargas Llosa. I'd not heard of him before. Uh, It's set in Peru, in Lima, and the chapters alternate between uh, autobiographical, semi-autobiographical sections about the coming of age of this young author. He's pursuing a slightly scandalous relationship. And then bizarre parodies of the scripts from Peruvian soap operas. It's It's a different book. Most of us in the book club decided that we didn't much like it, Um, particularly the end. Because the final chapter sees the author returning to Lima many years later and running into some of his old acquaintances again. Obviously, some have changed, some are the same, but the whole plot of the book seems to fizzle out. It stalls and comes to nothing. As all of his relatives had predicted, his his marriage had failed after a few years. And by the time this chapter comes round, he's got a new wife, who we know nothing about, a new life based in a different continent, which feels utterly separate to the rest of the story. It's weirdly unsatisfying. The way that reality has intruded and stopped the narrative dead. I often get that kind of feeling near the end of novels, I have to say. I think it's because I read very, very superficially. I focus just on plot, because I'm not very clever with books. But the authors are probably deliberately slowing things down, making intelligent comments which are gliding over my head. But, but anyway, having finished that book, I turned to Acts to start preparing sermons for tonight and next week. And I was hit by pretty much the same feeling. Because for a pop junkie like me, Axe is great. 
We've read of God at work and Jesus sending his people out on an audacious mission. We've seen the Spirit making and equipping a people for God. There have been miracles and earthquakes and a paradigm shift, that's a science fiction term for you, a paradigm shift of the Jewish believers as the gospel goes out to the Gentiles. And then Paul is called back towards Jerusalem and onwards towards Rome. And I'm rubbing my hands together. What adventures are going to come next? What's Luke got in store for us? And abruptly, it's like the plot has run into a brick wall. Paul gets arrested in chapter 21. And we basically get five and a half chapters of legal wrangling. And there's only one verse in all of that where Jesus is clearly active. That's 23 verse 11. And even then, it's only to say, hold on, Paul, keep going. Particularly, our passages for tonight and next week show that. There were three whole chapters of slightly repetitive stuff with not a single convert, not a single miracle, just three trials without a proper verdict and two years in prison. Now, okay, Luke has not set out to write a thriller, but couldn't he have done a bit better anyway? Couldn't he have summed it up in a couple of sentences instead of all of this? It it feels almost like he's running out of steam, like reality is intruding on the narrative, and there's just no more space for apostolic hijinks. Remember, Luke was writing about his recent history. So his audience know how it ends. Heroic Paul ends up just another prisoner in Rome. And this active, powerful Messiah God leaves him there. Well, I I don't think it is just the narrative running out, this reality and truth. I think Luke is a more sophisticated writer than I am a reader. There's stuff going on here that bears looking at, but it's not in the plot. The messages are underneath that. I guess that's one of the reasons I like preaching, because it makes me do the work and and look deeper and read the commentaries and not glide past sections like this that I'd be tempted to dismiss. I think Luke's writing on at least two more levels as he records this stuff here. On the one hand, he's almost certainly writing a distinct message for his Roman audience And on the other, he's probably speaking to Christians about what Christian experience is going to be like. To to the Roman audience, the Jewish authorities and others have been taking pains to attack Christianity. They're calling it a rogue sect, not orthodox Judaism, not sanctioned by Rome, unacceptable to upstanding citizens. To the new believers... Young Christians, Luke wants to tell them how they can react to trials and persecution. So let's deal with those one by one. First, the message to Romans. We don't know who Luke was writing to. Not specifically. He dedicates both Luke's Gospel and Acts to someone called Theophilus. It could be a general code name for any believer. But some of it, particularly the start of Luke's Gospel, reads like Theophilus might be one particular person 
someone in a relatively high position, someone that Luke's trying to give an orderly, accurate account of Christianity to. Whoever they were, Luke's audience faced a dilemma. They lived in a Roman world. Now the Romans had a pantheon of gods, and as anywhere, public worship and politics were deeply intertwined. It's not that they were intolerant. The Romans had often been really good, really flexible about incorporating other nations' religions into their own worship. Or, alternatively, they might officially sanction foreign religions as acceptable for Roman citizens. So Judaism had been officially sanctioned, made acceptable, uh, in the time of Julius Caesar. But at other times, the authorities could identify a cult as being fundamentally opposed to basic state religious positions. And such an un-Roman cult would be squashed. No right-thinking citizen would want to be associated with it for fear of being ostracised or seen as disloyal to the empire or to Caesar. Did Christianity fit that bracket? It was monotheistic, which doesn't sit well with the rest of Rome's religions. More importantly, it was founded by an outlaw. And most importantly, probably, that outlaw, a foreigner, was supposed to be the embodiment of God, not Caesar. Is this something that a good Roman can afford to be associated with? Is it un-Roman? I don't think we've quite got a label in Britain that would carry that kind of stigma properly, but maybe think about how a mainstream politician will do anything they can to avoid being labelled racist or homophobic or illiberal. Luke's readers will have been well aware of the allegations against Christians, and if they're ever going to do more than toy intellectually with the gospel, they need to be persuaded that it's not dirty, it's not wrong, it's not un-Roman. So several times through Acts, Luke's been very careful to point out that Paul is a Roman citizen. And now, here in chapter 24, we have a Roman Christian on trial before a Roman governor, defending himself against charges made by a Roman lawyer. In chapters 25 and 26, the trials were repeated in front of another Roman governor, as well as Rome's vassal king, Agrippa. And the ultimate verdict, by the end of chapter 26, he's perfectly innocent. It's only by his own choice that he's sent on to Caesar. In fact, it's to protect him from non-Roman Jewish attack. Luke is saying, Christianity is an acceptable choice. Don't discard it out of hand. Let's look at the first trial and a half a little bit more closely. In chapter 24, this guy Felix, not a nice man. As governor, he'd built up a reputation for horrific brutality in the way that he put down rebellions and settled disputes. And actually, at the end of that chapter, when he leaves, he's being summoned back to Rome. It's not just the end of his time as governor. He's being called to give account for his actions before Caesar. Fortunately for him, he's got powerful family who end up shielding him. A brute, 
and not a great role model in other ways. So Drusilla is mentioned here. She's his third wife. She's already married. He's alleged to have seduced her away from her previous husband with the aid of a magician. He's a questionable guy. And he's hated and feared by his Jewish subjects. So at the beginning of chapter 24, there's a fair bit of irony as they send Tatalasin to butter him up, get him ready for their accusations. And those accusations in 5 to 8, Paul is an international troublemaker. He's a ringleader of an unapproved sect. And he tried to desecrate the temple of the approved Judaism. And that's why they've very lawfully arrested and detained him. And Paul's response is simple. It comes down to saying, I'm a faithful Jew. I'm a good Roman citizen. He points out uh, in, in verse 11 that the allegations of desecration and troublemaking are, are just baseless. You can easily verify when I got to Jerusalem what I was doing and the circumstances of my arrest. It was only a few days ago. You, you can go out, you can find witnesses easily. In fact, in verse 17, he says, I, I was here on charitable grounds, bringing gifts. And in verse 19, the people who initially accused him, they seem to have dropped their charges and vanished. It's not clear that the Jewish authorities have any grounds left for their accusations. He's a good Roman citizen. He's also a faithful Jew. That's really important. Not part of some upstart, unsanctioned sect. Yes, he follows the way. He admits that. But in verses 14 to 16, he says, look, I believe all the same laws, all the same prophets. I've got the same hopes. I was ceremonially clean, in verse 18, when I was arrested. Now, the only dispute they can point to Verse 21 is this internal religious thing where in fact Paul is more orthodox than his probably Sadducee accusers who didn't believe in the resurrection at all. He's a true Jew, faithful to a religion sanctioned by Caesar himself. We'll look more at Felix's response in a bit, but Essentially, he sees there's no reason to prosecute Paul. So he grants him some privileges. He doesn't keep him completely locked up in verse 23. But he does keep him imprisoned for political reasons and the hope of a bribe. <coughs> Luke's message here, it's not exciting plot. It's simply that there is nothing un-Roman about Paul's behaviour. There is nothing un-Roman about being a Christian. It's God's message, says Paul, for the righteous and the wicked, Jew and Gentile. He builds that up before Agrippa later. In chapter 25, Luke extends this slightly. We get the start of Paul's trial before Festus. This time, instead of a corrupt brute, Paul's being tried by what seems to be a more upstanding Roman. Festus is presented as sort of efficient and honest and straightforward. We don't know much more about him. Paul's defence is paraphrased in 25 verse 8. It says, essentially, I'm a faithful Jew. I'm a faithful Roman. I've done nothing wrong in either of those spheres. 
And when, for political reasons, Festus says, can't we try you in Jerusalem and get it done with? Paul in verse 9 makes the point. The Jews don't have the rights. This is a Roman matter. To be settled in front of a Roman court. And he appeals to Caesar's protection. Both civically and religiously. Then Luke is presenting Paul and along with him Christianity as okay for a Roman audience. Baseless accusations which no Roman trial has ever confirmed. In fact, Christianity should be protected and approved under Caesar's law. Although, as crazy Emperor Nero gets underway, that doesn't bear itself out historically. Luke's saying Roman citizens can honourably associate themselves with these ideas. Now, of course, ultimately, Christianity is un-Roman. It puts their highest allegiance to God, not to a human emperor or to a state or even to self. But I think Luke's trying to make the gospel safe enough to nullify enough of the spurious allegations against it so that people can approach it and consider it and then encounter God instead of dismissing it out of hand. So a few application points here. Some questions to consider. Being on Roman isn't a big issue for us, I think, hopefully. Even being on British, that doesn't worry people very much. Even being a troublemaker. But what are the allegations that a modern day to tell us would be throwing against Christians? What are the unspoken points of faith? the basic assumptions that people around us have, justified or not, which would make them just discard Christianity out of hand and not engage at all with the gospel, never encounter God in his word. How do we then copy Luke here? How do we as Christians need to speak out, either deliberately challenging the accusations, as Luke seems to be, Or just in our lives and witness, showing that Christianity is acceptable, is good, is worth considering. What are the damaging labels attached to the Christian message before people even hear it? Intolerant, homophobic, self-righteous, fairy tale, ignorant, judgmental, unscientific. How many of your friends and colleagues think that about the gospel? And so don't engage with it at all. Do we prepare for that? Are we conscious of it? Are we ready for it as we we bear witness to the grace that we've received? Or, Or do we just speak in our own Christian language which they don't get? Do we ask God to change those assumptions and overcome them? Only he can. Paul and Christianity, says Luke, are not un-Roman. It's not something just for the Jews, just for one group of people. It's the same hope for the righteous and the wicked, for all people, for each of us. That's his message, I think, to the Roman audience and to our world as a whole. And secondly... There's a message to the Christians. 
Look at how Paul stands before his accusers. It's trial after trial after trial. He's not guilty, although in chapter 25, verse 11, he he doesn't object to death if he is condemned. He's not guilty, yet he's never acquitted. He's never vindicated in any of these trials, or or even in Rome, where he probably gets uh, decapitated. And despite constant opposition, Paul's not always swamped in miracles or hordes of converts, or the Spirit clearly at work. Did did you notice that despite two years here, there is no record of church growth, or church planting? It's not to say it didn't happen, but if it did, Luke hasn't chosen to record it. He's presenting the Christian experience in Paul as hard, often under accusation, often profoundly constrained. It's it's not without encouragement, of course. Paul knows the truth of the gospel. He can identify God at work in his past. And he's had this vision in 23 verse 11. Take courage, you'll get to Rome to testify. But it's not going to be sunshine and miracles all the way. Luke's showing the Christian life is tough but glorious. If you've been following this sermon series through the year, then several times you'll have seen how Luke deliberately emphasises the similarities between Jesus' life and his followers. Christ, in Luke's Gospel, was tried five times before his crucifixion. He was arrested and condemned by the Jewish leaders, tried twice by Pilate, the Roman governor, and found not to deserve death, but condemned for political reasons. He was condemned by the crowd, and then tried before Herod. And over the course of chapters 22 to 25, Luke carefully shows five trials of Paul. Two before governors, one before a crowd, one before a king, and one other that I've lost track of somewhere. Uh, Never mind. Uh, One before the, the Jewish council. Oh dear. Okay. Um, I think it's really a, a very direct fulfilment of Christ's predictions for his people, particularly Luke 21. The servant, says Luke, is not greater than the master. If the master suffers, then the servant's going to get the same indignities. People will treat them in the same way. But the master was glorified. And so too will the servant be. So what a privilege for Paul to share in those sufferings. And so it is that through all of this, Paul responds to his troubles with faithful, considered witness. I think that's the model that's there for us to follow. We'll see more of that next week in chapter 26. But for now, just have a look back at 24, verses 24 to 26. And see how Paul speaks even to corrupt, barbarous Felix, who's imprisoning him, and his Jewish wife, Drusilla, in their adulterous marriage. They'll never respond, will they? We don't know. And it's left open. We don't know what happened with them. 
But see how Paul anyway tailors his witness, just as he has for each different audience throughout Acts. See how he tells them what they need to hear. Here it's righteousness, which they lack. Self-control, which they seem to lack. And the judgment to come, they will know enough of Judaism to know where they stand before Paul's God. See how, how Paul, the prisoner for Christ, faithfully bears witness before kings and authorities so that the Roman governor was scared. See how there's something nagging and powerful enough in that message that despite his guilt and fear, Felix keeps wanting to hear more. I think we're meant to get the feeling in verse 26 that there's more than the hope of a bribe going on. Now more of that next week, but I I think Luke's message to Christians in the face of hardship and trials and God's apparent distance and fruitlessness is emulate Paul and Jesus before him in faithfully, carefully, considerately telling your captors and anyone who will listen what they need to hear about the righteousness and the grace that God has revealed. In this case, it seems to include speaking truth to power pretty courageously. But also long-term witness. And I I think attention to the audience's individual needs and situations as he puts this gospel account together for them. So what are the challenges here for us? I think one to ask is, What are your ideals of a successful Christian life? Is it to live the middle class dream of good reputation, comparative wealth, stability, a family and and long healthy life? Is it more noble? I'll find my mission field, I'll do great things, I'll be used mightily by the Lord. Or in your daydreams, how do things end up? I'm amazed by how often my ideal daydreams see me being proved right in imaginary conflicts. Vindicated. Or just life being made easy by wealth and success. What do you hope for? What's your heart's desire? Luke shows us such a different expectation in Paul. There's no vindication, no health, wealth, success. He's been told again and again, go to Jerusalem, go on to Rome, but he's been told again and again he will face suffering if he does. Here, he gets two years in prison and corruption for his troubles. Two plots against his life. And we know that if he follows this path on to Rome, sooner or later it's execution. Why does someone choose that? Back at 24 verses 15 to 16. His heart's desire lies in the hope of resurrection. And so he strives to keep his conscience clean before God and men. And he longs to share that hope with them, even with Felix. What's your heart's desire? 
I think if I really believed this gospel, if I really had that same hope in God, I'd be ready to share the gospel in and out of season. I'd, I'd want to encourage other people in the church family, in conversations, in house group. I'd want to encourage them to do the same. Wouldn't I put energy and time into thinking about how I communicate this gospel best to my friends and colleagues and family? Working out what they need to hear, what the obstacles are for them. Even if for years, like here, I see no fruit. But the reality is I don't live like that. I don't emulate Paul. I need to be challenged and reminded and encouraged to. What's your heart's desire? Another question. Are we discouraged when we don't see God at work? When we don't see change in us or others? When we don't see vindication and justice? Two years Paul's in prison for here. With much more to come. And where's God during that time? If you struggle with that, it might be worth listening back over the morning sermon series on Esther and God's silent sovereignty. For now, though, I'd just like to point out that Luke already knew this end of the story when he started writing Acts. This all falls under that introduction in chapters 1 and 2. This is all what Jesus is continuing to do through his spirit as his gospel goes out to the ends of the earth. And by extension now in our mundane lives with humdrum problems, yet our Lord is at work for his purposes. Two messages then from Acts 24 and 25. The gospel is acceptable. It's not to be discarded out of hand or given over to the accusations made against it. It's not just for some people. And so, under those accusations, Christians need to bear faithful witness. They need to show the true nature of the way. Not to be vindicated, but to give testimony to the grace that we've received. 